I'll ask you to turn with me, please, to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. And we will be considering Nehemiah chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, if you're wondering why we're going through Ezra and Nehemiah during this time, it is because in many ways, Ezra and Nehemiah, or Ezra and Nehemiah, the book, deals with what we are doing right now, or what we're in the process of doing. We are rebuilding community. We are recovering from the ravages of COVID, and we are seeking to both rebuild community and reach out to the community around us. So um, Friday night, we had a wonderful time. Oh, well, I'm not, I, when I say we, it's the people who were there because I wasn't there. I was taking care of Daniel. But they had a great time having games night. Um, I'm told that quite a few people were out. It was a time to build ties and build community with one another. It was a preview of February 11 when we get together to, um, to play more games and enjoy one another's company. And I'm hoping that today you'll join us for that membership discussion. Even if you're not interested in membership yet, come join us and uh, enjoy our time together. And, you know, if you have other questions outside of membership, I'll take them too. Um, so, Nehemiah chapter 1. Part of what we'll be talking about as an elder, as elders and deacons, is what is God's calling for us as a church? Why are we here? What does God want us to do in the coming years? And so that begs the question what does it mean to be called? Well, according to Frederick Buchner, the place God calls you to. It's the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. I like that. I spent 10 years running away from my calling until God made me realize I would only find my deep gladness in guiding God's people by giving them God's word. And that changed the course of my life. In the case of Nehemiah, that pivotal moment came when he heard about the plight of Jerusalem in verse 2. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from... Well, let's read the whole passage. Nehemiah 1, 1 to 11. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, 
Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah was confronted with the world's deep hunger when his brother told him in verse 3, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. That need in Jerusalem showed him not only the world's great hunger, but where his deepest gladness lay. And that's why his response was to weep, to mourn, to fast and pray for many days. And please understand, this wasn't just a matter of patriotism or nationalism or concern even for his fellow Israelites. His deepest gladness went far deeper. You see, over and over he says, the people of God, the people of Israel are God's servants. He recognizes that they are the people of God. They represent God. In fact, in verse 10, he recognizes that they were the people whom God had redeemed by his great strength and his mighty hand. And Jerusalem was the holy city, the site of God's temple. It was, if you will, God's address here on earth. It had been rebuilt over 50 years before. But if Jerusalem's walls were broken down, it was more than a national embarrassment. The broken walls made it look as if God could not or would not take care of his people. These are God's servants. These are the people whom he had redeemed with his mighty hand. And yet, their walls were broken. So it seemed as if either God was not keeping his promise to care for his people or had really good intentions but could not protect his people. Either way, the situation of Jerusalem was dragging God's reputation through the mud. And that's where we see Nehemiah's greatest, deepest gladness. He speaks of one who delights in revering God's name in verse 11. His deepest gladness was in the glory of God, the honor of God. 
And that's why he was distressed. And he couldn't just shrug his shoulders or shake his head in disappointment. Neither would he content himself with a cash contribution. He had to act. And so his concern for the honor of God drove him to his knees in prayer. And his prayer reflects on the words of Moses in Deuteronomy. In verse 5, he begins by acknowledging the infinite greatness of Yahweh, our covenant Lord. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The God of heaven, that means he is above all, great and awesome, recalling what God had done in the Exodus to embarrass the gods of Egypt, proving that he is the one true and living God. But then he goes on and recognizes that the reason why they were in that situation was because of their sins. Verse 6 all the way to verse 7. Verse 7, we have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. They are vassals of Persia because of their covenant unfaithfulness. It's not that Yahweh was weak or unfaithful. In fact, God was faithful and just to pour out on them the curses of the covenant. But he also recognizes, as he reflects on the words of Moses in Deuteronomy, that the same righteous character of God that would not tolerate their infidelity also gave them hope. This is the faithful covenant Lord. He keeps his covenant of love. God would not give up on his covenant. That's why he has hope. And he quotes God's promise in verse 8 and verse 9. It's a promise that reflects on the words of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1 to verse 4. He prays to God, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Mind you, he's not trying to leverage God with his own words. Nehemiah is casting himself on the faithfulness of God. Because he knows that God has already begun to act on behalf of his people. He's begun to keep his word. Because in verse 10, he says, They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. This is not just the exodus he's talking about. Isaiah and Jeremiah spoke of the return from exile as a second exodus. And we talked about that in Ezra. He recognizes that God had already begun to act on their behalf, he had already begun to keep his word by restoring them to the land. And so, in the words of Dean Ulrich, by confessing sin and asking for Artaxerxes' change of heart, Nehemiah prayed for the advancement of God's mission. He wanted his God to remove any impediment among and beyond his people. Simply put, God cannot stop now. That's really the burden of his prayer. He has already done too much for the post-exilic community to let the present trouble and shame sabotage his worldwide intention for them. And Nehemiah knows he can count on God's unfailing love because he and his people are servants 
belonging to God. Over and over and over in his prayer, servant is repeated. He recognizes that God had intended for them to be the means by which he would glorify his name. He had called Israel together to be a light to the nations. They didn't deserve it, for sure. I mean, Deuteronomy 7, 7 says, you love us because you love us. God chose them unconditionally. And because God had chosen them unconditionally, he will not give up on them. He will show them mercy. And that confident hope of Nehemiah enabled him to persevere in prayer for four months, praying that God would give him favor, praying that God would reverse this situation of shame. Now you might wonder, so what makes Nehemiah think that God was calling him to do something about Jerusalem's need? Well, the answer is in verse 11. I was cupbearer to the king. God had put him in a position to take action because he had direct access to Artaxerxes, who had ordered the rebuilding of the walls stopped many years before, or some years before. And he didn't just have direct access. Artaxerxes actually trusted him. I was cupbearer to the king. And as cupbearer, he didn't just hand the king his wine. The cupbearer was actually supposed to taste everything the king ate to make sure that the king did not get poisoned. And so, in a very real sense, Nehemiah's job was to put his life on the line for the king every meal. He was secret service, if you will. But you will note that even though Nehemiah recognized his position of influence, his position of trust, he was not relying on those assets. He was counting on God's sovereign power to give him favor before the king. Notice how he prays. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. See, only God could make things happen. Nehemiah would simply be his instrument. And just as God had providentially placed Nehemiah in a position of influence, God providentially gave Nehemiah the opportunity to make his petition to Artaxerxes. But it did take over a hundred days of waiting. We are told in chapter 2, verse 1, that one day, while Nehemiah served Artaxerxes' wine, Artaxerxes noticed that he looked sad for the first time. And so he asks, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. You see, Artaxerxes could have interpreted his sadness to mean that Nehemiah was plotting against him. That Nehemiah was somehow unhappy with Artaxerxes. That could have been a death sentence. But Nehemiah, having prepared himself in prayer, recognized, yes, this is a dangerous moment, but this is also an opportunity for me to act. 
And so he admits, yes, O king. Um, verse 3. May the king live forever. King, I'm not mad at you. Nothing personal. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, realize the wisdom of his response. He avoids naming Jerusalem, right? Because Jerusalem, in Artaxerxes' mind, was a rebellious city. So he describes it as the city where my ancestors are buried. So that he avoids the connotations of Jerusalem, he also is able to build on the sympathy of Artaxerxes. Because in the Persian culture, reverence for one's ancestors was, um, was encouraged. And graves were considered sacred spaces. And in answering this way, Artaxerxes was automatically sympathetic to Nehemiah's concerns. He would say, yes, that's a legitimate reason for sadness. And so, Artaxerxes responds, what is it you want? Payoff question. And Nehemiah knows exactly what he wants. This is his one chance except for one problem. This is the same king that had stopped the rebuilding of Jerusalem because he thought it was a rebellious city. And so Nehemiah is asking Artaxerxes to go back on his own order. He's asking the king, the absolute monarch, to change his mind. And that could so offend Artaxerxes, he could order Nehemiah executed. This is no less than a life and death situation. And so he does the only thing he could do. Verse 4, Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. And he waits with bated breath before the king. Will this be yes or dead? King responds, So how long will your journey take and when will you get back? Now, when I worked in sales, we called this buying signals. <laughs> kind of question like that, you prepare the purchase order, sign, please. <laughs> King was sold on the project. He could trust Nehemiah to be loyal and to act in the best interests of the empire. And so, as Nehemiah would say, it pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. And we realize that in those hundred odd days that Nehemiah was praying, he was also thinking and researching because he was ready to capitalize on the king's pleasure. So he goes on, verse 7. Now, king, while you're at it, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city 
wall and for the residence I will occupy. Might as well ask, right? While he is in a good mood. And certainly, Nehemiah's integrity and loyalty in the past led Artaxerxes to give him everything he wanted. You might also say that the presence of the queen, um, according to verse 3, is it? Where is the queen? Verse 6, thank you. Or some scholars would say favorite concubine because that's the implication of that, the word in the original. The presence of the queen or favorite concubine might have put Artaxerxes in a good mood. And some scholars suggest that the timing of the feast, because Nisan is the first year in the Persian calendar, so maybe there was a convention where the king would grant any request uh, at the New Year's feast. Those are possible factors. But the main answer is found in verse 8, the last part. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. God was sovereignly acting on his behalf and on behalf of his people, answering Nehemiah's prayer, though he and his people did not deserve the mercy of God. That's why it's God's gracious hand upon him. God had answered Nehemiah's prayer in verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, Artaxerxes. In fact, the king was so kind, we are told in verse 7, uh, verse, um, verse 9, that, God, that the king was so kind, so favorable to Nehemiah, he even gave Nehemiah a military escort. Verse 9, I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Now, if you recall, Ezra didn't ask for a military escort, but that's because there was a very different situation. Ezra did not ask for a military escort because he was trying to demonstrate to Artaxerxes God's power to protect them. Nehemiah, on the other hand, needed a show of force. First of all, to convince Israel's opponents and the people of Israel themselves that Artaxerxes was behind the project. In other words, the presence of the cavalry of the military escort said, this is a legit project. I didn't make up these letters. The military escort lent extra credibility to the letters Artaxerxes had given him. Because the degree of opposition Nehemiah would face required that extra credibility. Because, verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And that's understandable. So Sanballat and Tobiah were probably governors in the region, and they considered the Israelite returnees to be interlopers. They were hated. They were rivals. And worse, the coming of Nehemiah, because they knew he was the king's cupbearer, 
meant that he was a personal threat to their status and position. This is a guy who has personal access to the emperor. And he's here. He's, he, he's on our territory, taking away our territory. So that military escort was very necessary. Now, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12, Nehemiah finally arrived in Jerusalem. And he rested for three days, and then he took the time to assess the condition of the walls. And before he said anything at all to the people there, he wanted to do a survey. He wanted to make sure he understood what needed to be done. And having gone around, done that tour in the night, he could see a, it, it was a humongous job. And he could understand why the people were discouraged. See, the failures of the past and the magnitude of the task were so overwhelming, the people actually needed as much rebuilding as the walls. And so, like any good leader, Nehemiah pointed them beyond the task of building the walls to a greater reason, to a greater responsibility. He oriented them beyond their need to protect themselves. Verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Now, please understand, he wasn't appealing to their pride. Remember that the Israelites understood themselves to be representing God. So that he was reminding them, guys, this is more than just our need to protect ourselves. We are in disgrace. And because we represent God, our disgrace is God's disgrace. And so in calling them to build, he is challenging them to vindicate the honor of God whose name they bore. They needed to act so that God, God's name would no longer be put to shame. And then he reassures them. Look at verse 18. That God was with them. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. He was trying to tell them, guys, you don't need to be afraid. God is already actively at work on your behalf. In fact, my presence here is already a token of God being with us. God will enable us to accomplish the mission. And so, verse 18, encouraged and challenged, they embraced the task of building the walls to, to honor God. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. They were united by a common passion for the glory of God. And not even the opposition and mockery of Sanballat, of Tobiah, and of Geshem the Arab could dissuade Nehemiah and the people. Notice what they say. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? You know, Nehemiah could, might have had the support of Artaxerxes, but the reality of it was that the Israelites 
were politically weaker. They were less numerous than their enemies. They were less established in the land. They had every reason to fail. But notice Nehemiah's confidence. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. In the first place, you might ask, dude, you're a cupbearer. You're a sommelier. You, you know wine, you know food. You, you put your life on the line. That's why you're here. What do you know about building? Well, it's not about his resources. It's not about his connections. Being a cupbearer is a different matter from leading a building project. But verse 20 reminds us that the confidence of Nehemiah and his people was founded on the ability of the God of heaven. Notice what he says. The God of heaven will give us success. It's not something we strive for. It is a gift given by the God of heaven. Now, I'm not Nehemiah. And we're not building a wall, thankfully. But in many ways, our mission is the same. To act for the honor of our God in Guelph. And God put us here in this place because the people in this place around us do not honor God as they should. And God has put us here. He has given us the privilege and calling to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light so that our neighbors would join us in honoring this excellent, glorious God. And just like the Israelites, this task is beyond our ability. We're too small, we're too limited, we're too imperfect. But again, praise God, His gracious hand is upon us. And if you paid attention to the reading this morning that Michael read, you realize that God is even more passionate for His glory than we could ever be. Because Jesus went to the cross so that He may glorify His Father by laying down His life and saving us to the praise of His glory. And so we have the confidence that God will act on our behalf as we give ourselves to serving His purposes. And already, we are seeing God provide for the financial needs of our church. One of the most disconcerting things for a new pastor is to sit in a budget meeting and realize, and hear, uh, you know, our, our givings are down. <laughs> and we might face a deficit unless we raise givings by 11%. And it's like, 11%? Are you kidding me? That's a lot. But, you know, five months into this new fiscal year, I can honestly say God has provided abundantly. In fact, beyond our expectations. 
And that's a token of God's commitment to us. It encourages us to build, to take God at his word. And just as the work began in the hearts of the people of Israel, the work begins with our hearts. You see, people will not take our witness seriously unless we ourselves are so captivated by who God is that we would give up anything and everything for his name's sake. And think of Nehemiah. He had a really cushy job in the palace. He got to taste everything the king tasted. I mean, sure, it could be poison, but, you know, <laughs> being a canary is comfortable, even if it's dangerous. But by and large, he lived in the palace. He ate good food. He could have just given a contribution. But no. His passion for God led him to give up his comforts to take on an even more dangerous and difficult position. Now, please understand, this is not a matter of you and me willing ourselves into making sacrifices. Nehemiah gave up his post because he longed for God to be glorified. He was passionate for God because he was responding to what God had done in the past. Of how God had exerted his great strength and mighty hand to take his people out of Egypt. And how God had exerted that same great strength and mighty hand to restore his people from their exile. We have an even better greater reason. We can look back to those things, but we look back to the cross. As we sang, when I survey the wondrous cross, I love the way that song was tweaked. See, Isaac Watts talked about the, um, the moral influence of the cross in the original hymn. But the influence, the effect of the cross isn't just moral. It's not just an example that compels us. It is, but it's more. And that's why that tag that was added actually points us to the objective accomplishment of the cross. It doesn't just compel us because the love of Christ is so magnificent. It compels us because the love of Christ was effective. It has brought us life. It has given us hope for all eternity. And that's what should grip us. It is a love so great that Christ laid down his life for us. And so as Isaac Watts would say, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And that's the challenge that is before us today. To recognize that God has called us to be his witnesses here in Guelph. And as we know this amazing love, it is our privilege to tell others 
about this same amazing love, whatever the cost might be. In the first place, isn't that what it means to be a child of God? Did not Jesus say, if any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow him. And didn't Jesus die and rise again for us so that we should live no longer for ourselves, but for him who for us died and rose again? And more importantly, didn't he also promise as the king who has all authority in heaven and on earth, that he will be with us as we obey his call to go into all the world, to make disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey all his commands. So brothers and sisters, let's get to work. And like Nehemiah, let's begin by praying. As was mentioned, the elders and deacons are going to be meeting this coming weekend. We'll be talking about our church's current condition. And we will be prayerfully refining our vision for the coming years. So join us by praying. There's not enough space in the retreat center, but you can join us by praying. Pray for us that the Lord would guide us. And as you pray... Please pray about how God is calling you to be part of his purposes for Crestwick. See, all we, we all need God to guide us to understand how he means for our deep gladness as individuals and as a church, how he means to meet the world's deep hunger through us. And to that end, I invite you this morning as we close this message by praying together. It's a prayer written by Matthew Henry. And I hope that this would be our prayer as a church and as individuals. Let's pray. Together with me. Let the people praise thee, O God. Join me. Yea, let all the people praise thee. O let thy salvation and thy righteousness be openly showed in the sight of the heathen. And let all the ends of the earth see the salvation of our God. O give thy son the heathen for his inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. For thou hast said, it is a light thing for him to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. But thou wilt give him for a light to the Gentiles. Let all the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. Oh, let the gospel be preached unto every creature. For how shall men believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without preachers? And how shall they preach except they be sent? And who shall send forth laborers but the Lord of the harvest? Oh, let the earth be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen. Let's stand.